Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see everybody here and uh, just also want to just sort of express uh, my thankfulness uh, for this body and specifically the, the ladies that are here. I'm just really thankful for all the women uh, at Riverside uh, that are a part of this. And uh, we just really appreciate all that you do. We appreciate uh, your support. We appreciate your service. We appreciate your uh, just modeling of worship and your modeling of following Christ. And um, I know that this goes without really needing to be said, but, uh, you know, the body of Christ uh, would be incomplete without the women of the church. And so uh, we're just really thankful for each one of you, what, really, you know, whether you're a mother or not. Um, and so we're just really thankful for all of you today. And however uh, you come into this day, I uh, just want to echo what Stephen said. We're just, we're with you, we're for you, and we're thankful uh, for you as well. Uh, today, it is uh, my privilege uh, to have some time to share. We're thinking and praying uh, for Paul and Deborah. They're enjoying a little R&R with some family, and so we miss them and looking forward to having them back. Um, but uh, thankful to have some time to be able to just walk through the word with you this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be back in John uh, chapter 13. Uh, again, another very familiar passage. And um, we want to just sort of listen to what the Lord has for us this morning. So if you'll just pray with me real quick before we begin. Heavenly Father, God, we uh, just come to you this morning uh, full of worship already. Uh, God, our hearts are full. And so God, now as we just take some time to lean into your word. God, we pray that you would just open our hearts and God, that you would uh, just use your spirit to convict where there is need for conviction, to encourage where there is need for encouragement. Uh, God, that you would build us up in our faith. God, that we would leave not the same, but with a renewed and fresh sense and desire to follow you with our whole hearts and our whole lives. And we just pray this. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, I don't know, uh, being Mother's Day, uh, if you have any lunch plans, um, maybe you've already got some reservations. If you need an idea, uh, you could just check out your local Wendy's. Um, Wendy's is always, always good. They've got some good deals. Um, but I, I was thinking about Wendy's a little bit because of the founder, Dave Thomas, and it is fitting, I think, uh, to maybe consider at least Wendy's on Mother's Day uh, because of this. Dave Thomas was a man who led by example and from a place of service. And I think that when we think about mothers, uh, a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times that's kind of what we think about. We think about someone who leads by example and from a place of serving those around them. Uh, Dave Thomas actually said this one time. He said, I got my MBA long before my GED. I even have a photograph of me in my MBA graduation outfit. It's a snazzy knee-length work apron. I guarantee you that I'm the only founder among America's big companies whose picture in the corporate annual report shows him wielding a mop in a plastic bucket. That wasn't a gag. It was the case of leading by example. At Wendy's, MBA does not mean Master of Business Administration. It means mop and bucket attitude. 
It is how we define, define satisfying the customer through cleanliness, quality food, friendly service, and atmosphere. And so, you know, there, there's my plug for Wendy's. Maybe you'll consider going there. But the, the point is this. In John chapter 13, we're going to look at probably one of the most recognizable acts of service that Christ displayed apart from, of course, what he did on the cross. But I think the fact that it is uh, in the days leading up before the cross uh, makes it significant. Uh, again, as time is dwindling down, the things that Jesus are doing become extra, extraordinarily more significant because these are the things that he's saying and doing that mean the most to him, I believe. And Jesus is lived a life of love, of ministry, of uh, seeking to uh, not just save, but to minister to people on a daily basis. And so it is an action of love. And here's an interesting thing that I think is true, is that authentic love, genuine love, is always going to be an action. It's always going to be an action. It, we might say that we love things or people, but if it's authentic and if it's genuine, then there is going to be action to accompany the words that are said. And so we have this example, we have this story in Acts chapter, or sorry, John chapter 13 of Jesus with his disciples just a couple of days before he is going to be crucified and he's going to be buried and eventually would rise again. And we want to look at this and look at the purpose of what he was trying to accomplish. And we're going to look at sort of two different parts. The first is the sovereignty of Jesus. The first few verses of this section focus in on what Jesus knew. It was what he was thinking. And then the last part of this text focuses in on what he was doing and what he put into action. And so very at the very beginning here, let's just sort of look at the sovereignty of Jesus a focus on what Jesus knew. Now, let me sort of set the stage here. There was a heaviness that was in the room as he gathered with his disciples that evening. No doubt that the disciples could feel the burden that Jesus was carrying, and yet they had no way of knowing how this evening was going to unfold. And even though Jesus was under intense burden, he was very well aware of what was laying in wait, what was lying ahead of him. And so when we think about the sovereignty of Jesus, there's three different things that Jesus knew. The first is that Jesus knew the plan. Look in verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The first thing that Jesus knew was he knew the plan. He knew that his hour had come. He was well aware that the time for his crucifixion was approaching quickly. There had been a season of opposition before. But during those times, his hour had not yet come. He was aware of the suffering that he would endure. The great sacrifice that he was about to make. He was also, though, aware of the disciples. He was very aware of how they were feeling and what would happen to them. He was soon, he knew that very soon that they would be scattered, that they would be left alone with their thoughts, 
being afraid and confused and uncertain about their future. See, Jesus came to the upper room to offer them comfort and assurance. God does not forsake us in our hour of need. He is aware of our situation. He's aware of the difficulties that we are about to face. He has given us the promise of his presence. And in our seasons of adversity, he provides comfort. When we are at our very lowest moments, Jesus chooses to serve our needs. I mean, think about that for just a second. That when we are at our most desperate hour, Jesus chooses to step into that and to serve the needs that we have. When we think about serving, I think a lot of times we tend to think about acts of service that we're sort of committed to do, right? The things that we're signed up to do. The organizations, the ministry programs, the events, the activities of service. All of which are good and important. But I think that this is more than just that. This is about serving another person in their time of need and in their place of need. It is much more personal. It is much more individualized. And that's what we want to look at this morning is these principles that speak to the heart of service. Because life is messy. And life is unpredictable. And a heart of service is ready in those moments. When I think about this, probably one of the examples that just immediately comes to my head is my, my parents. Um, happy Mother's Day, Mom. Um, and, you know, I'm so thankful for my parents, but uh, my, you know, you guys, many of you know this, my parents have been serving in ministry for like 150 years. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, but, but my mom's only 30, so, um. but you know, they have enjoyed a life of ministry. Uh, it, our life as children, it was full of church and church programs and organized service. But you know, one of the things, one of the things that stood out to me the most as a child was the immediacy with which they would respond to personal and individual needs. I don't know how many times we had people over to our house and they were giving and doing and they would just often drop everything that they were doing in the moment to serve in this need that was, that was happening. It was different. It was bigger than just showing up at church for a certain organizational meeting. It was serving a need in the midst of it. And oftentimes it was very inconvenient. And I think that that is one of the principles of service. When we think about the story of Jesus, one of the principles here is that serving is often inconvenient. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to endure suffering. This is the most inconvenient time for Jesus. And yet he has his eye on the needs of his disciples. His focus was not just on the cross or his coming suffering. His eye was on the will of the Father. Serving will rarely be easy. It will rarely be convenient. Those needs for those, the needs of those around us will rarely come at a time that fit our personal schedule. There was a man and his wife who were awakened at three o'clock in the morning by a loud pounding on the back door. 
And so the man got up and he went to the door where there was a drunken stranger standing in the pouring rain and he was asking for a push. Not a chance, said the husband. It's three o'clock in the morning and he slammed the door and he returned to his bed. Who was that? Asked his wife. Just some drunk guy asking for a push, he answered. She asked, did you help him? No, I did not. It's three o'clock in the morning and it's pouring rain outside. His wife said, don't you remember about three months ago when we broke down and we needed a push and those two guys helped us? I think you should help him and you should be ashamed of yourself. You can almost hear his wife saying that. The man, of course, does as he told. He does as he's told. He gets dressed and he goes out into the pouring rain and he calls out into the dark. Hello, are you still there? Yes, comes back the answer. Do you still need a push? Calls out the husband. Yes, please, comes the reply from the darkness. Well, where are you, said the husband. Over here, on the swing. (laughs) He needed a push. I I get it, right? Sitting on a swing, not 12 months, it's not very much fun without a push. Sometimes, though, service is just inconvenient. It, It requires us acting at times that we don't have time it requires us doing things that re, that involve things that we don't have it, it involves us doing more than what we often want to do at sometimes but that leads to really the second principle and that is that serving comes out of our love from for god the motive for moving beyond all the barriers of service for love is the love that we have for god jesus gave himself and he gave all that he had for those he loved. Jesus rooted his actions in two aspects of love. Love for those who were with him in the world and love for his father to where he was returning to. His love was not based on how wonderful the disciples were, right? This is, this is not a kumbaya moment where he's just so thankful for the disciples. The world is going to label people in certain ways, at certain times, as unlovable. But when we see them, and we see them as being made in the image of God, we can serve them in love. And Jesus knew. He knew the plan. But there was something else that he knew as well. He also knew the plot. Look in verse chapter, chapter 13, verse 2. The text goes on. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. So he, he, this is at a time when he knows that there's this plot that's happening with Judas. Uh, among the disciples, the, he, Judas was the one who probably just looked like everybody else. He looked like the rest. He had been with them for years. He ate with them. He shared in their joys and in their hardships. He witnessed their miracle, the miracles. He heard Jesus proclaim the word. And he even served as the treasurer for the group. By all appearances, Judas, you would think that Judas held a position of great prominence among the disciples. He may have kept all of the money, but inwardly he was filled with greed and contempt and wickedness. And Jesus had walked with Christ, the Savior of the world, and yet he had never accepted. He had never accepted Jesus as the Christ. Jesus knew what all the others could not have known, that there was no personal belief 
and that betrayal was coming. See, Jesus sees and knows more than what is revealed by the outward appearance. He sees and knows the heart. And so, again, we see these principles of service. One being that Jesus was the ultimate example of servanthood. See, Jesus served without discrimination. He served without agreement. He served without acceptance. Jesus served out of love rather than out of responsibility or obligation. Service sees past the person and sees into the human need out of a supernatural love for God. But there is something even greater than just that. And that is that love in betrayal is an extravagant love. It wasn't just that he loved the people, that he loved the disciples, but that he loved in the midst of betrayal. Even more remarkable than Jesus' willingness to serve others was his willingness to serve those who sought to destroy him. The cross is the ultimate expression of his love. It's a testimony to our inability to save ourselves. It's a testimony to his love for us. But the cross is more than a broad sweeping act of sacrifice for all of humanity. Which, of course, it absolutely is. But the cross is also a deeply singular and personal act of love for you and I as individuals. This remains a very difficult truth for me to comprehend. It wasn't just that Christ went to the cross for everyone, which happens to include those who stand in betrayal of Christ. But in the moments before the betrayal, knowing fully what would happen, Christ bent his knee and served at the feet of the one who would be, in, in terms of a human source, his suffering and death. What would, who, the person who would lead to his suffering and death. Jesus served even in the midst of this plot that he knew about. But there's a third thing that he knew as well. He, he knew the plan. He, he even knew the plot, but he also knew the purpose. Jesus knew the purpose of what he was about to do. Look at verse 3. It said, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. The crucifixion of Christ is the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. We live in a culture that focuses with a, uh, a, a dramatic response to injustice, which is worthy for sure. But injustice is not limited to my experience or just my own perspective or even my own opinion. Jesus was holy and sinless the Son of God, and yet he was condemned to death on a Roman cross. There is no greater injustice in history. But this injustice was part of God's sovereign plan. Jesus came to earth with purpose. He came to die for our sin. He was born to die for the transgression of all humanity. And while Jesus knew that he had done nothing worthy of death, he knew this is what the Father had planned. And by submitting to death 
on the cross, he would fulfill the plan to redeem humanity from sin. It was his purpose. And and this is significant for a couple of different reasons. One is that purpose is always empowered. Listen, when we do things with God's purpose, it will always be empowered by God. When we serve someone, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. We don't serve out of our own strength or wisdom, but out of the plan and purpose of God for that person and for that need. And sometimes we have a tendency to resist serving someone because we think that it can't make a difference. We think that we can't, you know, we can't really offer them anything that will really matter. But when we serve out of our love for God and in the purpose and plan of God, then we are tapping into the power of God at work. Jesus knew that there was power because it was part of the purpose of God. But there's a second part to this as well. Not only is the purpose empowered, but purpose is eternally relevant. It is eternally relevant. When we serve someone, it matters. Jesus served with a perspective that was bigger than just the moment. He served with an eye on where he had come from and where he was going. When we serve someone with an eye on where we came from, it makes us more compassionate and more empathetic to the person. And when we serve with an eye on the future in Christ, it allows us to serve in faith and with divine expectancy to see the power of God in our own lives manifested in the life and needs of others. Like there's, there's power in this because there is purpose. And it matters, not just for the moment, not just for the need that is in the present, but it matters on an eternal level, on an eternal scale. And Jesus knew this. And so he sits down in the upper room with his disciples hours before he goes to the cross. And he knows, he knows the plan. He knows this plot and he knows the purpose And what does he do? He acts. And so out of his sovereignty, we see the submission of Jesus. And it's a transition here where the focus moves from what Jesus knew to what Jesus did. Right? There there is a transition that often needs to happen in our own lives. Where we have to, at some point in our faith journey, transition from what we know to what we do. Because if it's only what we know, and we live in what we know, and we never do, then not only do we miss the witness and the testimony to the world, but we miss out on the blessing that God has for us. And we see that in this next section. Jesus, knowing the plan, the plot, and the purpose, put into action a visible expression of his love, his compassion, his forgiveness, and his eternal perspective. Jesus entered into this very tender and intimate moment with his disciples, and he did what was both unexpected and also what was abundantly needed. The act on its face is breathtaking. And the symbolism of what it means for you and I is rich beyond measure. 
And so let me just walk through this in three parts. The first is that we see that humility is conveyed. Verses three through five, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so Jesus, as many of you are familiar with, is about to wash the disciples' feet. Foot washing was reserved for slaves. Even Jewish servants were not expected to perform such a demeaning task. It was a task that really was reserved for Gentile slaves to perform. And so here, the Son of God, the Savior and Sovereign of the world, rose and assumed a position of a slave. It was humility on display. I'm reminded of a story of a large group of European pastors who came to one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible Conferences in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. Following the European custom of that time, each guest put his shoes outside of his room to be cleaned by the hall servants overnight. But of course, this was America and there were no hall servants. Walking the dormitory halls that night, Moody saw the shoes and determined that he didn't want to embarrass his brothers. He mentioned the need to some of the ministerial students who were there, but it was only met with silence and pious excuses. Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up the shoes, and alone in his room, the world's only famous evangelist began to clean and to polish the shoes. Only the, mon the, only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of the work revealed the secret. When the foreign visitors opened their doors the next morning, their shoes were shined. They never knew by whom. Moody told no one, but his friend told a few people, and during the rest of the conference, different men volunteered to shine shoes in secret. Perhaps the episode is vital insight to why God used D.L. Moody the way that he did. He was a man with a servant's heart, and that was the basis of his true greatness. It's humility in what we do, not, what we, not just what we talk about. See, Christ came to be the model of servant leadership. Let me ask and maybe pose this question. I don't know how you would answer it. But we are called to serve Christ. That's pretty clear in Scripture. But do you think that Christ still serves us? I want you to sort of take a look and, and read through some verses with me. First uh, John chapter 4 Verses 10 and 11, if we can put those up, says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent a son to be the propitiation of our sins, the payment of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So his love in his son being sent and the death paying for our sins. Mark 10, 45 for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he is serving through his death. Luke chapter 22, 
But not so with you, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So now it's moving. It's not just his death, but he's serving the people that are around him. And then Philippians chapter 2, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born into the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so there is this humility, there is this leadership in serving that is found in Christ. And so I wonder, does Christ still serve us? Well, you can think about that. And here's my thoughts on that. I believe that the death of Christ continues to serve us. It serves our salvation. It serves our hope found in the resurrection. It serves our faith. It serves our joy. It serves our peace. Christ continues to serve us in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our failures, and even in the midst of our sin. He is advocating in the throne room to the Father on our behalf. He is serving us through the death on his death on the cross daily. But maybe more. How about this? Christ continues to serve us in and when we serve others. I go back to 1 John 4. He talks about that we love others out of the love that God has given us. And so he continues to serve. When we serve, then we receive the love and the blessing and the fullness of Christ. Serving others is also receiving the service of Christ. If you want to receive Christ serving you, serving your body, serving your life, it comes out of this place of serving others. Dr. Carl Minninger was a world-famous psychiatrist and was answering questions after giving a lecture on mental health, and somebody asked this question. They said, what would you advise someone to do if they felt a nervous breakdown coming on? Most people expected the doctor to say, consult the psychiatrist. Instead, he said, Lock up, your, lock up your house, go across the railroad tracks, find someone in need, and do something to help that person. I think that's so good. Now, let me give a disclaimer. I think that there is an appropriate place and value for talking and seeing a psychiatrist. That's not his point. That's not what he's saying, is that if you just do good things, it's going to solve all your problems. But he's saying that there is a part of our mental health that is uh, ministered to by serving there might need to be some other parts as well, and God will give wisdom to that in your journey, wherever you're at with that. But there is something about serving others that contributes not just to our spiritual well-being, but it contributes to our physical well-being as well. Serving is focused on the needs of others, right? That's, that's an understatement, and it's obvious. Jesus takes no regard for his power or position. And we may think that, you know, when we consider ourselves, that we are not people of power or position. But maybe the question is, is who have we overlooked? What needs have we overlooked because they weren't in the same category, because they 
didn't really fit in. They, they weren't really in the place that we prefer to serve. Maybe we need to shift our question from should I to can I? We have to do an about face where we say, you know, not just should I serve this person, but how can I serve this person? I, I, I want to take a minute here and just brag a little bit on my wife. My wife is an executive director at a uh, assisted living and memory care community. And she has worked very hard for many years to uh, get to that point, And God has blessed her journey along the way. In those years working up to it, she served under a lot of other executive directors. And uh, like everybody, you know, some are better than others. Uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, do their best, but nobody's perfect. So I'm not trying to malign any particular person. Uh, but one of the things that she uh, sort of picked up over the years uh, was the attitude often of an executive director that would come across at least where, you know, they had worked their way up, they had achieved, and they had gotten to a place where now they could just have other people do those things. That they didn't really want to be bothered. That they would just rather delegate off a lot of the stuff, the communication and uh, dealing with families and trying to help with problems and trying to work with the staff. And it was just easier. And they sort of had an attitude where they've kind of earned this position and that was sort of below them now. And one of the really cool things that I'm very proud of is that she really has a different shift. It has shifted and has really a different perspective in how she uh, chooses to operate herself as an executive director. And because of that, she, she has, is somebody who really uh, kind of does everything. Uh, may, may, maybe even a little bit to a fault. She was moving around furniture this last week. And if you've ever tried to move a hospital bed, they weigh like 9 million pounds. And uh, she hurt her back. You shouldn't be lifting hospital beds. But her mentality is as if a bathroom needs to be cleaned, if a CNA needs uh, to be helped out in helping a, a resident that's there, if there's some, a table that needs to be cleaned or a floor that needs to be swept, that she's going to jump in and she's going to do it. And she's going to lead by example. And because of that, her staff uh, has always, no matter where she's at, has followed her with fervor and joy because they see this focus on the needs of others that comes from a place of humility. There's humility that's conveyed, but there's also in this consistency displayed. Uh, Jesus knew what was happening with the betrayal of Judas, but then on the other side, he also has Peter who loves to open his mouth, right? Peter loves to open his mouth. And so we have this comparison that happens in the last part of this. Look at verse, verse, sorry, chapter 13, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am I, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Sometimes I think we need to take that verse and write it on our walls in our homes to be reminded of that. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. And so we have this sort of contrast between Judas and Peter. Peter watched the Lord wash his friend's feet and he became disturbed. He couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. It's interesting here because the word wash in John chapter 13, you don't have to memorize this, but just so you know, in 13 verses 5 and 6, verse 8, verse 12, verse 14, it's all one Greek word that means to wash a part of the body. But the word that is translated washed in verse 10, it means to bathe all over. The distinction is important here. When a sinner trusts the Savior, he is bathed all over and his sins are washed away and forgiven. However, for the believer who walks in this world, it is easy to become defiled. He does not need to be washed all over again. He simply needs to have that defilement cleansed away. And so why do we want to keep our feet clean? So that we can have communion with the Lord. In in many ways, this foot washing sacrament It it illustrates aspects of both baptism and communion. We want to have communion with the Lord. When God bathes us all over in salvation, he brings about a union with Christ that is a settled relationship that cannot change. This is not what baptism does, but it's what baptism represents. Baptism represents the washing and renewing of our life when we've trusted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and receive him as Savior. Baptism does not do that for you. It's an act of faith, but baptism represents that. It cannot change our faith. Our union with Christ is secure in Christ forever. However, our communion with Christ depends on our keeping ourselves, James chapter 1 says, unspotted from the world. Unconfessed sin hinders our walk with Christ, and then that's why we need our feet washed. And so maybe I'll just echo the question, does anybody need their feet washed this morning? I do, and I showered this morning, (laughs) but I do. There is sin in my life constantly that I have to be making right with God so that I can be in communion. We're not talking about being obsessive about it, but we're talking about being diligent and intentional about it. This truth maybe is best illustrated in the Old Testament when they talk about priesthood. When the priest was consecrated, he was bathed all over and that experience was never repeated. However, during his daily ministry, he would become defiled. And so it was necessary that he would wash his hands and his feet at the brass laver in the courtyard. Only then could he enter into the most holy place and trim the lamps or eat the holy bread or burn the incense. It's the same idea. And so what are the principles of service here? Service is the antidote for selfishness. If you're ever feeling really great about yourself, serve someone. It's a good antidote. When we seek to meet the needs of others, we take our focus and attention off of ourselves. Service creates a shift in our attitude and perspective. Service shifts the natural place that we tend to put ourselves as the center of our world. And it replaces it by putting God in his proper place as the center of our world. Secondly, serving requires the setting aside of pride. 
I like this, Chuck Swindoll, he said, we usually feel embarrassed by deeds of service because we perceive the normal rules of status or rank have been breached. In Peter's mind, the lesser should serve the greater. See, pride will always interfere with our relationship with Jesus. To accept what Jesus offers is to accept the truth that we need what he has to offer. Grace sometimes can be hard to accept because when we do, we're saying that we accept something that we needed desperately, but that we would never be able to provide for ourselves. Jesus was consistent in how he handled Judas and how he treated Peter. And then there's the third and final part of this, and that is the deity that was portrayed. Let's look at the last part of this section, verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The disciples didn't have the authority to cleanse themselves, much less anybody else. The work is reserved for the Lord. You and I don't have the ability to cleanse others. We don't have the ability to force them to change, nor would we want that. Jesus Christ alone has that power and ability. And so what do we do? We serve as a demonstration of his love and his grace. And we allow God's power and grace to bring about a supernatural change that is needed for both eternal life and for daily living. Service is learned from the master. The closer we walk with Christ, the more we will have a heart of compassion and love for others and a desire to serve their needs. Now notice in there, I didn't say the closer that we are with the Lord, the more activities you'll sign up for at church. You might, and that's a part of it. That is a way to serve the Lord. But listen, if all we're doing is serving on community committees and leading uh, you know, different ministry things that are happening and, you know, popping in to help with this and popping in to help with that, all of which is good. I'm not trying to discourage any of that. Please, none of you quit what you're doing to help. <laughs> but if that's all we're doing and we're forsaking the personal, in the moment needs of people, then what are we really doing? And what really is our attitude towards service? 1 John 4, again, I already read this. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Serving requires doing. It's not just something that we talk about. It's not something that you just uh, sort of have attached to you naturally when you become a Christian. There was a story of a Wycliffe Bible translator. His name was David Miland, Miland I think. And his wife, uh, they moved to a village in Brazil uh, with this tribe of Indians. And when he moved there, he was basically simply referred to as the white man. 
the term was by no means uh, a compliment since other white men had exploited them, had burned their homes, and robbed them of their lands. But after the Milans were there, they began to learn the language, and they began to help the people with medicine in other ways, and they began, after a while, to call Doug the respectable white man. It was getting a little better. When the Milans began adopting the customs of the people, then the Indian group gave them even greater acceptance, and they spoke of Doug as the white Indian. Then one day, as Doug was washing the dirty, blood-caked foot of an injured boy, he overheard a bystander say to another, Whoever heard of a white man washing an Indian's foot before? Certainly this man is from God. And from that day on, whenever Doug would go into an Indian home, it would be announced, here comes the man that God sent us. I think that that's good. I don't know about you, but that's how I'd like to be known, right? I think that that's the testimony that we want to be able to have, is here's the person that God sent, not just an organizational representative, but a person who, because of their love for God, loves and desires and is willing to drop whatever needs to be dropped to meet the need that is at hand. As I close, I want to draw your attention. Don't don't close your Bibles yet, because I skipped over something that I think is maybe the crux of this passage. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 13, there's an interesting phrase that's here. And and maybe, if you noticed, it's also the title of the message. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I wonder what that means. And maybe you have your own thoughts. This is the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Maybe it just simply means that Jesus loved them the entire time that he was with them. That he loved them right up to the end. And that would be true, absolutely. But I wonder if this isn't a little bit deeper than that. That in the context of everything that we just looked at and everything that we just studied, in the context of Jesus' ministry and approach, I think that there is an aspect that when it comes to serving and to loving others, that the idea for us as believers is that we serve people to the end. That we walk with people in the depth of their crisis, in the depths of their need, and we walk with them consistently until the end. That just as the Father is faithful to never leave us and never forsake us, that as the body of Christ, we walk along individuals to the end. That if you have a need, that if you have a problem, if you're going through something, that you can know and you can trust that there are going to be people in this body that are going to stick with you. Not just at the beginning, not just a phone call when it happens, but that till the end, there is going to be people that are going to walk with you and through it until whatever that end looks like. You know, you think about the people in your life that you know have needs 
How can you walk with him to the end? What would it look like to love someone to the very end? What would it look like to be in a church that served people to the very end? Maybe that's the call for one of us today. Maybe God is calling you to be a person that would love and serve to the end. I have a gift for you today. It's really a a very terrible one. It's not nice at all. (laughs) But I have this sort of raggedy old washcloth. And you don't have to take one, but you're welcome to if you'd like to. But I think sometimes we just need reminders in our life. Now, maybe you're going to take this out and wash someone's foot. I, I don't know. That's not really the design or purpose of this. You can do it if you want to. But let it serve as a reminder that we want to love people and serve people to the very end. That in these moments that are inconvenient, in these times when we don't really feel like it's going to matter or make that big of a difference or really, you know, it's just going to be a waste of our time, that we can remember that God has called us to serve. And in his most desperate hour, that's what he was doing. He was serving and loving people to the very end. And that's God's call for us. And so you can take it and just let it serve as a reminder. Or you can use it to change your oil. (laughs) Let me pray and close our time together. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the example that we have in scripture of uh, just the way that you humbled yourself. And that you served the people that you walked with, the people that you loved, the people that sought to betray you to the very end. God, would you just place in our hearts that appropriate balance of loving and serving people. Not just in terms of what we do, but in terms of individual personal needs. God, may we be a people that loves well, that serves well to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.